The Tom Woods Show, episode 2333. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. As the academic year winds down, it's time to start thinking about what you're going to do in the fall. And of course, I highly recommend the self-taught K-12 Ron Paul curriculum. Not only will your kids get the real story about everything, but they'll also learn the kinds of practical things that they won't learn in the traditional school. For instance, how to be an effective public speaker, how to manage money, and how to run your own home business. And of course, when they reach the high school grades, they will be learning Western civilization and U.S. government from old Tom Woods here. But here's the most important thing. If you're going to join, make sure you join through my link, because only through my link do you get $160 worth of free bonuses. My link is ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm so happy to have our old friend Scott Wharton back. Scott is director of the Libertarian Institute, which you can visit at libertarianinstitute.org. They do such great work in terms of getting really, really good information out on a daily basis, but also in publishing really, really excellent books as well. I hope we'll have a chance to get to that a little bit later about what they're up to these days. Scott, of course, hosts the Scott Wharton Show. You can follow him at scotthorton.org. And I wanted to have you back on, Scott, because I haven't talked about Ukraine in a while. I haven't alienated enough listeners yet on this subject. I think most people are with me, but I think I have a handful who roll their eyes when we talk about this subject. But I want to get you back on. We haven't talked in a while. And also because you had a debate, which we talked about at last year's Pork Fest with Kathy Young on the subject of the U.S. government lending aid to Ukraine and whether that was a wise thing to do or not. And she had a few things to say in there that given the time you had, you didn't get a chance to respond to them. And I wanted to give you that chance. And also just because I'm curious too about what you would have to say. So welcome back. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I couldn't be better. Everything's going great. Great, man. You ready for me to just give you a, uh, I wouldn't call this a lightning round because I don't want you to give three word answers. Plus, I know you're Scott Horton. Yeah, that's impossible anyway. You're incapable of that, even if you wanted to. But let's start with this one. And this is one that we hear quite a bit. You were pointing out in the context of NATO being a quote-unquote defensive alliance, and if they're a defensive alliance, why only an aggressor would be a friend. You know, we've heard all that. But you were saying, well, okay, well, let's look at the history of this defensive alliance and what it's been doing in connection with Russia. And so naturally you brought up 2014 in Ukraine, which we'll get to, but you also brought up more recently the case of Belarus, and you were talking about how Geez, the U.S., from the Russian point of view, just won't stop. They're just constantly intervening and meddling in one country after another that's of significance to Russia. And Kathy Young came back with, I don't know why Scott thinks every time that there's any type of change of government in any country that the U.S. always has a hand in it, and there's nothing untoward going on in any of these cases. So do you want to take that on? She say that this is all phone. That yes, you can hear Victoria Newland on the phone, but they are not plotting a coup. They're just looking ahead to the future, she says. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the bottom line is wherever you have the National Endowment for Democracy, that's the U.S. government using what they call their soft power to intervene and to influence other countries in a way that we wouldn't tolerate, or I guess maybe we would, but shouldn't. And I wish you had warned me out of read up a little bit more on my write-up because I'm working on a book about all this now. And I do have a little bit so far about the attempted 
regime change in Belarus in 2020. But ultimately, it was an election that the American backside lost convincingly. And they do have a strongman leader there, but that doesn't mean that he's unpopular or that his opposition had a lot of support. But then the Ukrainian template, as just Romando called it, is after you lose an election, you just protest and complain about it and try to force the issue. In the case of, say, for example, Ukraine in 2004, convinced the Supreme Court to hold a new election and make sure your guy wins this time. Blame the Russians for poisoning him, something like that. So in this case, the actual leader of the opposition was arrested. Maybe he fled to Poland, I forget now. And then his wife tried to run and lead in his place, but didn't really get anywhere with it. And the exact degree of intervention by the Americans in that case, like specific examples and everything, I'm sorry, I don't have for you offhand, but I do know that they were avowedly and publicly on the side of the dissidents there and supporting the groups that were involved. And it's the same thing over and over again. And as I demonstrate in the book that I'm working on it, this started, well, the first successful one anyway. Damick Adams told me that they had tried this in Albania in 1997 or whatever it was. There were a few of these before, but the first real successful one was in Serbia in the year 2000, the bulldozer revolution against Serbidon Milosevic. And the next one was in the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, and then in 2005, they had a successful, again, these are all coup d'etats essentially dressed up as revolutions, these color-coded things. It was the Tulip or Lemon Revolution in Kyrgyzstan, and then the failed Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, and then people probably remember more clearly in Iran in 2009, in early Obama, they had the Green Revolution. And people can look that up. It was NED-supported groups that were behind that after their guy lost the run for presidency. And they paid the groups to go out in the street and protest and all that kind of thing on the same template. So it's not that it always works. Oftentimes, these things fail, as in the case of Lebanon and what was the other failed one? I thought there was one more. Oh, there was, yeah, Belarus in 2005, the Denim Revolution in 2005, and Daniel McAdams, Ron Paul's right-hand man, the leader of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and co-host of the Liberty Report, of course. He was there in 2005 and wrote a piece for us at antiwar.com where he explained how that's funny because I'm reading the Western press and they're saying that there's this huge crowd out here demanding revolution, but no, there's not because I'm standing here right now and I don't see anything like that, etc. People could look that up. It's on antiwar.com to this day. It's one of my footnotes in the book. And then I direct your attention as well to Kazakhstan in January of 22, right at the height of when there should be diplomacy to try to work out a deal over Ukraine to avert war, I don't know for 100% certainty it was the Americans, but sure looks like it was the Americans or the Turks maybe working as American proxies, took advantage of a couple of riots, 
And then all of a sudden, there are like special operations squads seizing major fuel depots and airports and police stations and stuff and trying to take over the country, which then the Russians came in and crushed the insurrection and then turned right back around and went back to Ukraine. You might have thought that maybe Biden could have said, listen, I'll withhold the coup attempt in Kazakhstan if you just chill out and no, but he decided he had to push it. I mean, if the president was even in on it, who knows what Biden knows? And I, again, I emphasize, I don't have 100% fingerprints to Langley on that one, but it was, yeah. One thing was, at least as Moon of Alabama pointed out, Bernard at Moon of Alabama pointed out how the American embassy was saying, warning to Americans, there's a big protest at this address at this time where it really seemed more like they were promoting it than they were warning Americans to stay clear of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. As they often do. So... Yeah, I have a whole section about those in the book. Well, can you say something about, quote unquote, the book? I mean, you and I were talking about before we started, but maybe everybody doesn't know what your project is. Sure. Well, it started as a speech I gave in 2020 called The New Cold War with Russia is America's Fault. And then two years later, when the war broke out, I gave it as a speech about the history behind the Russia-Ukraine war that I gave for the Libertarian Party in the state of Utah. And then it was supposed to be a short book after that, but you know me. So here we are. It's a year later, and I'm embarrassed to say how long it is. It's more than 700 pages now, and I'm not done yet. But I'm going to edit it down, everybody. Don't worry. You'll like it. And it's called Provoked. The subtitle is How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. And so it's really a history of everything that Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama and Trump and Biden did to make it this way, which is a lot. Uh, There's so much to talk about. Let's talk about the actual struggles with writing a book when you have so much to say, and yet you feel like you have to part with some of it for the sake of getting people to read it. It is the endless struggle that people have. Let's get to that in a minute. There are a couple other things I want to run by. As you know, another claim is that the Russians have as their ultimate goal, not just the subjugation of Ukraine, but in some way, the reestablishment of the Russian Empire, indeed the Soviet Empire, more recently. And during your debate, Kathy Young said, Russian soldiers today in the Ukrainian towns they're taking are putting up statues of Lenin. Now, how much more explicit than that can you get? So after Ukraine, you think they're going to be satisfied? No way. They're going to do X, Y, and Z. What do you say to that? Well, first of all, that's just nonsense that them taking the Donbass means they want more than the Donbass. Let's say they take, and this is plausible if they had the ability to do so, that they would attempt to take possibly everything east of the Dnieper River. But even if they do that, that means they're coming for Poland next. There's no reason to believe that that's true. Putin, and I actually, I'm not sure if he was on muscle relaxers or what when he said this, but he did say last year in the middle of this war that, look, I really don't care if you bring Finland into NATO because we don't have a border dispute with them. We have problems with them. So like, whatever, just don't put your troops there. Something like that, which is, so the idea that, yeah, no, he plans on invading the Baltics next. What would he gain from that? From trying to bite off these populations in Poland and in the Baltics that don't want him or his power there and would obviously fight tooth and nail. And in this case, never mind my perfect world, in this case, are members of NATO and would trigger a war with America and Britain and France and Germany as well. 
It's not going to do that. And her argument be, yeah, that's because of the greatness of NATO. But I'm just saying, anyway, look at the situation in Ukraine. The status quo didn't change until America overthrew the government there in 2014 for the second time in 10 years. And I have quotes in the book from Barack Obama and a whole bunch of other experts too, in some cases admitting from their point of view that, no, this was not a plan to recreate the Russian empire. This was a spur of the moment reaction to what America had done in Kiev. And even as Obama put it, the transition of the government there that we had helped with or something like that, you know, in his euphemism, but essentially admitting it. And what happened, as I document in the book, is that three years four, I think it's three former presidents of Ukraine wrote a letter saying, now we have to get rid of the Kharkiv Pact, which was the deal that allows the Russians to stay at Sevastopol, their naval base at Sevastopol on Crimea, which they had held under lease since the end of the Cold War. As many people know, I guess it shouldn't go without saying that the Russians took Crimea as well as the Donbass and Zaporozhye and the whole eastern kind of part of Ukraine and all the way to Crimea in 1783 and took Crimea then from the Turks. And that was the same year that John Jay and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin went to France to sign the deal to end the Revolutionary War four years before our Constitution was even written. And they took it in war, but I mean, it is what it is. It's Crimea has been part of Russia, like Massachusetts, part of the United States of America since that time. The only thing that happened was Khrushchev in 1954 for political reasons to try to solidify his position as Stalin's successor needed the support of the Ukrainian Communist Party. So a celebration gift ceremony type thing, he gave them Crimea, but it didn't matter because everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin because it was the USSR commie dictatorship and the nation state of Ukraine as a Soviet socialist republic, as they called it, was essentially a fiction, right? Everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin. And so the whole thing was essentially window dressing for political reasons. Then at the end of the Cold War, and after the failed commie coup of August of 1991, the last of the republics said, forget this, and declared independence. And at that point, the nation state of what was left of the Russian Federation didn't have the ability to dictate terms to anybody. And everybody settled on what had been the line that had been drawn by Lenin back in the early 1920s. And I think in 1920, or maybe it had been earlier than that. But anyway, after the Civil War and all, had drawn the line to include the Donbass inside Ukraine. But of course, a historian like you understands how fluid all these borders are over time. We're looking at it in the snapshot of one lifetime, but these things can often change quite rapidly. And it was understood from the very beginning that there's a very special consideration here about the Donbass and the Russian-ness of it inside Ukrainian borders and whether it was going to get special treatment or not. And in fact, I believe Boris Yeltsin even threatened war back then very briefly, like in one statement that like, well, listen, if I have to, I'll do what I have to do kind of a thing to guarantee Russian interests there. So see, it made sense for the Russians to leave this massive pro-Russian, Russian-speaking, and culturally Russian and ethnically Russian population inside Ukraine. That gives them more leverage inside Ukraine, you know? So it made sense to not necessarily absorb them. But their highest priority was keeping that naval base. 
And then once the new coup d'etat junta threatened to kick them out of their naval base, they said no. And Putin later joked about it and said, you know, we thought it'd be really nice if, oh, let's see, how do you say it? I think it was, we thought how nice it would be to go and visit the Ameri our American friends at their naval base at Sevastopol for the holidays. But then we thought, nah, we'll just keep it and you come and visit us. <laughs> Something like that. Trying to make light of it. Our American partners, we get along great with them, he's saying, you know. And this is also what triggered the war in the East. And in fact, she was right in that debate. I think I probably adamantly completely denied it, but it is partially true what she said, that it was Russian agents, if not necessarily Russian nationals, but some of them who led the campaign to take over some of the buildings and led the protest movement to take over some of the buildings in the Donbass at the start of the movement for autonomy there, not really separatism, but just demanding strong federalism, like statehood level federalism for their province. So fine, even if you want to say whatever that Putin and his secret services and intelligence agencies bear 100% of the responsibility for that, which is not the case, but even if that's the argument, it's still Obama's fault, as he said himself in the case of Crimea, but same argument, that this was a reaction to the transition of the government in Kiev that he said we helped to accomplish there. And so it doesn't absolve Putin. Nothing that I said in that debate or that I write in the book is about absolving the Russians. It's just explaining about the role that the Americans had in all this. Bob Higgs, I believe in the case of Pearl Harbor, coined the phrase truncating the antecedents. They always want to say, yeah, and then them chaps attacked our naval base. Can you believe that? But it was like, wait, what happened before and then? You know, what are we talking about here? What did FDR do? And we know now from the McCollum memo, it was a deliberate eight-point plan to provoke them into attacking us. Oh, that's kind of relevant information, huh? It's the same kind of thing here. We're literally in the words of, she's, I guess I could find it for you, where Obama says that this is not a plan. He, and in fact, this is an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg, if people want to look it up, where he's kind of defending Jeffrey Goldberg saying, oh, if if you were tougher, then this wouldn't have happened. What about that? And this kind of thing. And he's saying, oh, yeah, well, I don't know. Bush had 100,000 troops in Iraq when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, which, again, was a response to a provocation by the guy that they had installed in the coup of 2003, by the way, you know. Let me see if I can find the Obama quote for you. I'm paging through the correct section here, I believe. Okay, so here it is, Tom. It's Obama to Fareed Zachariah on CNN. And he says, Mr. Putin made this decision around Crimea and Ukraine, not because of some grand strategy, but essentially because he was caught off balance by the protests in the Maidan and Yanukovych then fleeing after we had brokered a deal to transition power in Ukraine. So that was CNN and that's February 1st, 2015. And so that's the truth of it. And I got a lot more experts, including Hawks in the book explaining that we provoked the guy. This is not about reconquering Eastern Europe. It never was. And look, there's no reason to believe that Vladimir Putin is really an ideologue at all. After 20 years in power, I mean, I'm not saying he ain't ruthless. Of course, he's ruthless. He's a strong man, as they say, essentially president for life like Roosevelt, something like that. But I don't think that means that he had Roosevelt's ambition. So here's one other thing that came up in that debate. 
And by the way, I'm going to have a link to that up at tomwoods.com slash 2333, making a note to myself right now, your debate with Kathy Young. And you'll recall, by the way, that in my School of Life program, I think I may have told you this, the very day I watched your debate, I was giving a presentation to my members on how to be an effective speaker. And so I took excerpts from that debate. I showed her speaking and I showed you speaking. And I was using you as an example of what to do and her as an example of what not to do. So it had nothing to do with the content per se, but the delivery was very different. So just so you know, you were the shining hero, even apart from the content, you were the hero just from a point of view of speaking. But anyway, in that debate, obviously, when you talk about this subject, people talk about the Azov Battalion and fascism in Ukraine. And then other people say, oh, but that's a we're talking about a very, very tiny minority. That was the kind of response that Kathy Young gave. And then she said, not to mention that the Donetsk and Luhansk republics actually are run as fascist states. And then she said to you, the fact that you take seriously the plebiscites that happened in these places is just mind-boggling. So what would you say about that? Well, I mean, I, I don't think they're run as fascist states at all. I think they're run, she's talking about in the time period between the coup the declarations of autonomy there in the East, they're more accurately described as simply under artillery fire all the time as far as the actual, you know, implementation of a fascist state in Donetsk. I mean, in the meantime there, I'm not the greatest expert on everything that's happened there, but I've seen no evidence of that whatsoever. Those people essentially have just been trying to survive this whole time. And... As far as the plebiscites, the thing is that the numbers, I'm sure, were faked. I don't know. I don't really believe in any vote totals necessarily out of any side over there. And certainly, like, in a state of war, whoever's in power is going to get whatever results that they want. But at the same time, it's crazy to think that all those people did not support greater autonomy when it was their president that they had all voted for who had been overthrown. And when the war broke out, it's not like they all fled West under the protection of their benevolent leaders in Kiev. They stayed put, even under fire, or they fled East into Russia. So I don't know what the number would have been in a free and fair election, but I think it's clear that, see, even where you had, as I said before that there were some Russian agents involved in leading the takeover as there were American and other Western agents involved in the Maidan movement in Kiev. But there are still masses of people supporting them too. There are giant riots and protests just like you had had on the Maidan there. So certainly in the case of the Maidan, they say, well, whatever American involvement, look at all these people. That proves how natural the whole revolution is. Well, same thing here. And especially once they started being bombed by their own government, which immediately declared at clearly the behest of John Brennan, the head of the CIA who came to Kiev, they immediately turned around and launched what they called a war on terrorism, an anti-terrorist operation, meaning airstrikes and heavy artillery and essentially a full-scale declaration of war against Donetsk and Luhansk at that time. And so... It wasn't like they just sent the cops in there to arrest these Russian agents who were causing trouble. Why didn't they just do that? It was because, well, one, they were way overstepping, but two, they couldn't because 
essentially the whole areas were in a state of rebellion at that time. And their authority there was limited. And then once the war broke out, and I got all the experts on this, including C.J. Chivers at the New York Times, who is a former Marine and a real expert on this, and as mainstream as it can get at the same time, and a lot more information besides that too, showing that all the arms that the so-called separatists, the rebels, I guess we could settle on, since they really weren't fighting for total independence, that all their arms and their best fighting men were defectors from the Ukrainian military. And the equipment came from them. And, you know, the NGOs, was it CAR? Uh, the, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the NGOs, the experts who, they go and trace these weapons. These are old Soviet weapons from the Ukrainian military that came with defectors when entire divisions switched sides to join with the rebel side. And so even the argument that the Russians were pouring in weapons and troops is not true. I've found, I guess, consensus, although I don't see the exact proof myself, but it seems the consensus that the Russians sent special operations forces across the border to assist the rebels in August of 2014 and in February of 2015 in two major battles, which helped lead then to the Minsk peace deals that never quite took hold, but did lead to the ratcheting down of the war by far. That's for sure, because it was something like 10,000 people were killed on both sides in the first year of the war. And then after that, another 4,000 or so in the eight years after that, or seven years after that. Oh, and then let me say real quick about the Nazis on the coup side. And this is where you understand, and this is a good segue into the pain of writing a book, especially if you're me, is I got seven sections about the Nazis just in the Obama chapter. And it's not my fault. So the first part is about the international support for the coup. Then the second one is a violent putsch. And that's how the Nazis actually accomplished the street revolution in February 2014. The next section is, yes, Nazis. I'm not fooling. And here's some evidence to demonstrate that I'm not being hyperbolic here. It's not like in America where everybody to the right of Bernie Sanders is a Nazi. I'm talking about actual Hitler-loving, banderist, white supremacist, uberalist, untermenschen-type swastika tattoos on their chest, Nazis, okay? Then after that is, well, who the hell are these guys? Well, of course, their history comes from World War II and the real Nazis then, and then, of course, CIA support for them behind enemy lines during the Cold War, Right. And then after that is their domestic terrorism, beating up gays and gypsies and liberals and anti-war protesters and especially gypsies doing pogroms against gypsy camps and this kind of thing, right? Then is the international Nazi. Get it? Like the international Jew? But it's the international Nazi. That's a Henry Ford's book. Not that I read it or am promoting it. I'm just trying to make a joke. But it's about how Nazis from all over the Western world have come over the years to Ukraine to learn from their mentors and in many cases to go and fight with them on the ground against the Russians in the East. And how this has been a big problem, according to the national police all over the Western world for the last more than half a decade here. Then is all the rewriting of history 
in Ukraine and how they're making it completely illegal to say anything good about the Russians or Soviets, but they're re-legalizing saying whatever good things you want about the Nazis and the banderists and the fascists. And then they're also playing it down and saying, oh no, the banderites never served Hitler. What are you talking about? And all these just outright lies. And then I have the quotes from Jewish organizations in Ukraine, in Israel, in Europe, and in the United States saying, what the hell is going on here? How are we doing this? We have Nazi regiments of armed forces in Europe for the first time since World War II, and America's backing them, and they're erasing the history of the Holocaust in the country, and this is the side we're on. And so then skip a couple of sections. And then I'm back to now the foundation of the Azov Battalion as all these Nazis form up to go to war in the East to augment the Ukrainian military. And especially in the liberation of Mariupol and in the rest of the fight for that first year and since as well. And so that's eight now, right? And it's like, well, and then I have a section about how a bunch of former or quote unquote former American backed no, in fact, at that time, currently American and allied-backed suicide bomber jihadists from Syria. You guys can go look up earlier episodes of the Tom Woods show for that. And those jihadists were going to Ukraine to embed with the Nazis to fight against the Russians. And you can't make this up. It's true. And I got all my footnotes. So way too many of them. So this is the difficulty of writing the book is how do I explain this to you in a way that proves that I'm not making this up. This really is true. And it comes from all these wide and varied sources and also to explain the depth of it and what it all means and how scandalous it all is and how crazy it is that this is where the Democrats have got us right now. That's the most ironical part of it at all is it's Barack Obama, the first openly black president, Calvin Coolidge, who sponsors a coup to put avowed Hitler-loving white supremacists in power. I mean, you can't, you can almost not even call them neo-Nazis when they are literally the grandsons of the guys that did the Holocaust in the country. Well, I guess that's an answer to my question. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's totally bananas. You're the young Gene Epstein, Scott Ward. But look, but here's the thing. I totally understand, given that you have all this information, you've been spending a, a long time, very intensely, looking into this particular moment in history, you want to share your findings with everybody in the world. But at the same time, you think to yourself, ah, oh, but would people read a great big book? Now, let's remember that you will run into a lot of people who say, the thing that changed my mind and got me thinking like a libertarian was G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. That's an enormous book. And you'd be surprised how many people say that reading that changed their minds. But I still think that as a rule of thumb, there's a limit to what people will read. So you, that places you in a very challenging spot. It does. And by the way, Ed Griffin and Jekyll Island had a huge influence on me when I was a kid. I've probably done more to sell that book to people or advertise it to people anyway, back when I was a cab driver than any other man in this world. But anyway. Oh, and also I'm very influenced by him and my insistence on keeping the footnotes at the bottom of each page where you can see them in Jekyll Island form. Oh, all right. Well, then look, if that's what you're going to do, I'm going to say this for the whole world, but a lot of times I see friends of mine in their footnotes doing last name, first name. That's only for bibliographies. Because oh, yeah. No, I would never do that. Yeah. You, well, thank you. 
Yeah. But in a bibliography, you're alphabetizing the author's name. There's no reason in a footnote. Why would you put the last name first in a footnote? That actually makes it harder to read. Yeah. So it's first name, last name, comma, then the title. Definitely. Thank goodness we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I was telling the world that. It's one of my pet peeves. You know what's funny, Tom, is my friend Cornbread used to tell me all the time, man, you got to write a book. What are you doing? All you do is talk, put that on paper. What the hell? You know, kind of thing. And then... I just couldn't get my head around what am I going to write about until you called me one day and said, dude, let's do a thing together. It'll be like the war on terrorism for dummies. And I thought, okay. And then you went to lunch with your daughter. And while you were at lunch, I wrote up an outline of the whole book and was ready to go. And then we kind of put it off for a little while. And then I started writing it. And then you had things to do. So I started writing it. And then what happened, as some people know the ridiculous history of this, I won't say hilarious, only to me, that... When I got to chapter two, Afghanistan, I couldn't quit writing the dang thing. And once I wrote the torture chapter, and that alone was like 50,000 words or something, or 20, maybe it was 20,000 words. And then at that point, the chapter itself was 50. And I was like, man, what am I going to do? It's hmm. So I just, and I wasn't anywhere near done. There was so much more to tell about the war in Afghanistan. So chapter two of Enough Already became a whole book. And then I had to go back and start all over again. And then I gave Afghanistan short shrift that time on enough already and then tried to do the rest. But that took many more years. It was like six years after you called me or something that I finally put enough already out. The thing here is, as I said to you before we started recording, now's the time to strike. You never know how things could change. I don't expect this war to come to a conclusion within the next I know. four I'm hours. I'm feeling that too. Now's the time. Especially with that provocative title, because everybody says unprovoked. So that's actually a very yeah. smart no, title. Yeah, exactly. And I'm terrified some schmuck is going to steal my title, too. It's such an obvious one. But I got the barcode and everything already, so leave me alone. I call dibs on Twitter. But look, I'll make an analogy. This is how I feel about it anyway. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? The Afghanistan book, if you take all the footnotes and move them to the back, it's only 250 pages. And by the way, the only way I got away with doing enough already in 300 was because there's no footnotes at all. It's just whatever I embedded in the text. And then the rest is Google it yourself, unfortunately, but it is what it is. But anyway, in 250 pages of Fool's Errand, I think I can say this honestly, that by the end of the book, you're ready to go. You know what I mean? Okay, Horton, this is getting tedious. Let me off the hook. It's not my fault the war lasted so long. I got to tell a couple of the same stories a couple of times because they happened a couple of times. And it's important to... The last years of the Obama years, it was still important. So I, anyway, but I don't regret leaving anything out of that book. It's not like I'm thinking to myself, ah, oh, geez, I really wish I had a section on the town of Herat out West and all the stuff that had happened out there. Like that stuff's interesting, but it didn't need to be in the book. And I don't feel bad that it ain't in there. I don't really feel bad that anything's not in there. Kind of, it is what it is. You know, this book it ain't done being written yet. As I just told you, I haven't written the section on Belarus 2020 yet. I have some stuff on it, but I don't have a full thing on it. And the Skipral poisoning, I don't have that. I'm almost done with Navalny. But see, I'm skipping around too. I write the book in order of my notes, not in order of writing a book. So there's a lot of things that are still unfinished in there, including a couple of sections. I think, oh, and MH17, I haven't done that one. I barely started on that one the shoot down of the airliner. But it's like, what am I going to do? I gotta, I'm going to leave out MH17? I can't. I guess I could try to make it just one section of another section, but... And then Russiagate. I've been working for weeks, or no, 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 sorry, just the last few days. Well, I mean, on and off, but 
just the last few days in a row, I've been working on Russiagate. And just that alone is like 35 something pages. It started out as like a quick little list of all the stupid lies, which is such a huge list. But then I kind of got to develop them more than just a silly list. There's so much to it. And then next thing you know, it's fool's errand again. You know what I mean? It's a giant thing. It's, I think it's almost now it must be 40 or more than 40 pages is just the Russiagate part. And part of that is because I'm still so pissed off about it. I just like the Waco massacre or something like, or Iraq. Like I'm never getting over the Russiagate hoax. Oh, it's still just, mm. so I got a vendetta and I got to exercise it, you know? Obviously there's a connection between Russiagate and Ukraine because the whole thing was about weapons to Ukraine. Or, well, not the whole thing, but part well, of it. Yeah, and the whole Cold War with Russia that this dastardly Putin did a coup and overthrew our government, they said. The thing is, you could write, this is another case where one chapter of your book could become a whole book. Yeah, it already almost is. Although I don't think I have too much more to add to it at this point. Maybe a little bit. Oh, gosh, Scott. I wish I had advice for you. We were trying to think about how to handle this. Like, if there were a thematic way to say, like, let's say I have a lot of writing on COVID. And most of it is about the government response. But some of it is people's stories that they shared with me. Yeah. Not about the government policy, but about how it affected them. Uh-huh. And all these little micro tragedies from all around the country. So I thought to myself, rather than try to publish this absolutely enormous mountain of material I've written as one volume, what if I just took the stories and made that into a volume, like stories of COVID? Yeah. So I've thought about doing that as a way of making each one more manageable. I think it might be harder in your case to do that. I know, because if I stop it, like if book one is Bush Sr. through Bush Jr., but then the real story doesn't begin until Obama and the coup in 14 and this and that and whatever, then people aren't going to even read volume one. But then they're not going to read volume two if they're going to start with volume two without knowing what's in volume one. So that's not cool either, you know, kind of thing. So... I think what I'm going to have to do is I'm just going to have to be blunt about it and say, look, if I move all the footnotes to the back, it's only 600 pages. Don't be a wimp. And besides, it makes a great doorstop in case it's a nice day outside and you want to leave the door open. It'd be good for that too. And if you want to beat somebody up with it, you just hit them over the head one time and just, (laughs) what can I say? And you know what, man? I got people to read a book about Afghanistan and I didn't want to read any books about Afghanistan. I had read a couple. I'd read like two or three maybe, but I'm me doing this job. I had read two or three before I started writing the book. I mean, I've been covering it all along, so I was ready to write a book about it anyway. But then I went back and I read a bunch of them. But like, how could I expect you to read a book about Afghanistan? I do expect you to read antiwar.com and keep up with it, but I, I don't expect you to read a book about Afghanistan. But somehow I got thousands of people to read a book with Afghanistan right in the title. And so like, I don't know. And look, so far I've given this obviously to my guys first and one friend, Max Abrams, from Northwestern University, who people might know from Twitter, being really good on the war in Syria a few years ago and stuff like that. And he was really good on Russiagate too. And I sent a preview copy to him and he says, fantastic, and sent me an endorsement already. He was like, this is just great. This is exactly what I was hoping to have. And he didn't say like, geez, it's a little long, Horton. He was just like, man, I love it. And so I'm hoping, I mean, that's all I can say is like, you know what? It's going to be way too long, but damn it, it's a page turner. And it's really, if you move the footnotes to the back and everything, it's just like reading two books. It's not that big of a deal. And I hope I can just 
I'll just have to sell it that way. Which, by the way, I'm not anywhere near done. And I'm at 725. So, but I'm going to cut it way down. I'll figure out ways to reduce it back down as best I can to, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do, Tom. <laughs> at some point, I'm going to send a draft to you and go, well, you tell me what to cut now, man. Oh, yeah, I know. And I know, yeah, I talk a good game. Oh, Scott, you got to just cut it down. But then you bring it to me and I would say, keep everything. Well, you know, when I wrote enough already, I had you just hanging over my head, 300 page limit, man, 300 pages. And I was determined to do that. And even like, say, for example, in both of those books, I have a section on how Bill Clinton essentially provoked Al-Qaeda and also didn't do anything about it while they kept attacking us over and over again. And I do have, I think, two good paragraphs, maybe just one good paragraph about how he also backed them all through the 90s. He kept backing them in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya. But I really give it very little text, but then like a little mess of footnotes. But it's just all on one page where I explain that like Bill Clinton was up to no good with these Mujahideen, no different than Reagan, even though they'd already tried to blow up the World Trade Center. They'd already assassinated a rabbi in New York and they tried to blow up our guys at a training compound in Saudi, and then later the Kobar Towers, et cetera, et cetera, they kept attacking us, and he kept backing them anyway. Well, in this book, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya, all three get their own section. Bill Clinton's high treason against this country, backing these Mujahideen, essentially just to stick it to the Russians. And not just Mujahideen, but Bin Ladenites, Bin Laden's guys. And in fact, three of the 9-11, most important 9-11 guys, the two that were on Flight 77 that crashed in the Pentagon, the same two who'd been in the country for a year and a half who the CIA had followed here and didn't tell the FBI to wrap them up in time <clears throat> and all that, those same guys, it wasn't a missile <laughs> that hit the Pentagon. But those two guys, as well as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the major operations manager of the plot, for Al-Qaeda and carrying out the thing, who is in Guantanamo to this day, they all fought in Bosnia on Bill Clinton's side. You know, they were too young to have fought in Afghanistan. That was how they earned their stripes as true blue Bin Ladenites and got assigned to this mission. We can trust them. They fought for us in Bosnia. This is two of the 9-11 hijackers, man. They hit the Pentagon. And the guy that arranged the whole damn thing. So instead of just having a couple of paragraphs and a throwaway pile of footnotes, I went ahead and got some real research for you and explained it all as best I can. Because what am I supposed to do? Leave stuff out? Imply that this is true, but without really demonstrating it? See, at that point in both of those books, I'm really in a hurry to get to September 11th, right? Chapter one is like how Carter and Reagan and Bush and Clinton got us into this mess. That's just chapter one. Right. And then after that, we get to Afghanistan and then in enough already, the rest of the story from there, Iraq and the rest. But I'm like in a real hurry to let you off the hook and get to the damn war on terrorism when that's what I promised the book is about. In this case, I have more leeway to take my time and go, here's everything that Bill Clinton did. And that guy is a sinner in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the whole image of Bill Clinton thing is interesting to look back on, but Let's take a minute, because I want to make sure we don't neglect this, to talk about things you have going on at the Libertarian Institute, because you are going to be publishing some, I mean, you've been publishing some great books, including your own, but I know you have a bunch of the pipeline I'd love to hear about. Yeah, man. So we have one coming out very soon. I'm going to say within two weeks, probably, from Lori Calhoun, the great Lori Calhoun, author of We Kill Because We Can, which is an excellent book on the war on terrorism. And... 
This is a collection of all the essays that she wrote about COVID for the Institute in real time in 2020 and 21. And, and in fact, all the way through just a few weeks ago, because she keeps adding. <laughs> and it's just absolutely fantastic work on every aspect of it. And see, she's traveling the world. That's what she does, is travels the world all the time, like Carmen San Diego or something. So she's got takes from Austria and takes from Scotland and takes from all over the US. And I forget where else in there, maybe Australia. Anyway, it's fantastic though. And all of her great essays are absolutely fantastic. So that's called Questioning the COVID Company Line. And that'll be coming out any day now, probably within a couple of weeks, I think. And then there's this guy named Gary Vogler. And I'm really proud of this one. This guy, he claims, I think credibly, he spent more time in Iraq War II than any other American from the very beginning invasion all the way through and he helped run the oil ministry. And then here he read enough already and my take on the neocons and how they lied us into war with Iraq for Israel. And especially like when people say, yeah, it was a war for oil. Yeah, it was a war for oil for Israel. It was this ridiculous plot to rebuild the old pipeline from Mosul to Haifa that Ahmed Chalabi and the Iraqi exiles had promised the neocons who were idiots. And anyway, this guy said and gave me a great review on Amazon. You can see it's on Amazon. And he just said, like, this is absolutely right. This is the best telling of how they got us into the war and what the war was all about and everything like that. And telling of the war, I tell the history of the whole war in there and who was Zoom and who the whole time and all that. And um, that's thrilling, Scott, that you got that response from a guy like that. And then so we're publishing a book of his which is developing that story further about the neocons and how Chalabi made them believe they're going to rebuild this oil pipeline for most of the Haifa and how much that had to do with the policy during the war and everything else. And so we're already getting that edited and prepared. So that should be, I guess, another six weeks or a couple of months or something like that. But that's definitely in the pipeline is his book. He already wrote one book about Iraq and the politics of oil. Did I say his name? Gary Vogler. But this will be more particular about the neocons and Israel and all of that stuff. So that's going to be really great. And then I know everybody knows and loves Keith Knight. And he's working on a book. I hope I'm not spoiling this. I don't think I am. He's working on a book about how he left the left and learned all about how actually libertarianism and freedom is what solves all those problems of unfair system tilting that leftists complain about so much and all of that. You guys know the rep. Anyway, Keith is absolutely great. And he's an absolutely fanatical libertarian, determined to turn the whole world libertarian. And I think he just might do it before he's done. So he's definitely one of our best guys on a warpath there. Yeah, he's a hard worker too. Oh, he is. He's great. I saw him in New York at a Mises Caucus event, which was five blocks away. I don't think the organizers realized that it. it was held approximately five blocks away from Murray Rothbard's old apartment no in way. Manhattan. Awesome. So I said, I didn't even tell where we were going. I said, Keith, come with me. I need you to see something. And we walked the five blocks and I pointed and I said, that's where Rothbard used to live. And we got a selfie in front of it. Oh, that's so cool. We're part of the cult, I guess. Oh, that's great, man. That's really great to hear. It's 88th and Broadway, by the way, people. Okay. Yeah, yeah don't go knock on the door, everybody. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's not there anymore. And I don't know what apartment number it was anyway, but... <laughs> You'll find it there. So what else you have going on? I'll go faster. Sorry. I got William Van Wagenen. People might know. 
I hope they know that this guy has written an incredible, I mean, absolutely incredible series on the real history of Obama's dirty war in Syria for the Libertarian Institute. William Van Wagenen is his name. And I wrote my whole Syria chapter. Then I went and reread all of that stuff because I didn't want to plagiarize the guy because he did such good work. So I barely poached his stuff for mine when I could have really done much more. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic on every facet of that thing. And we're putting that out in book form real soon. And then I've got my buddy Brad Hoff. Remember that DIA report from 2012 where they predicted that the Islamic State could take over Western Iraq? And that's what our allies want to happen. And we should be careful about that. He was the guy who exposed that and wrote it all up. And was a great, he's a former U.S. Marine and expert in Syria, had lived in Syria for a while and really great writer. And he and his partner, Zach Wingard, who's a professor at, I believe at Baylor, they already wrote one book about the Christians of Syria and how terribly persecuted they were by Obama's bin Ladenite suicide bomber terrorists during that dirty war and all of the tragedy that had happened to them. But that was for a more limited audience. It was published by a Christian publisher that I'm not sure how much it got around. It may have gotten around. It's called uh, Syria Crucified. And they are now working for another one that's a follow-up on that. And I'm, I'm not sure because I know the original plan was it was going to be based on all secret documents that have come out about Syria policy over the years. But I think they may be kind of updating their take on that. But anyway, it's, I'm sure it's going to be great, whatever they end up turning in there. And then, of course, as I said, I'm working on my book. It's got to be done by the end of the year. I do have a lot of work to do, but you know, I'm going to do everything I can to crash on it this summer and try so hard to get it done for you. And then you probably remember Tom Ann Williamson, who had been the New York Times reporter. No, pardon me, Wall Street Journal. I didn't mean that, Ann. Please don't take offense. She was the Wall Street Journal reporter who had given a great speech at Mises. You can, everybody can find this at Mises.org. It's called Don't Cry for Yukos is her speech. And at least part of it's on there. But anyway, she's really great. And she had written a book. Get this, Tom. She had written a whole book about how America had backed all the worst financial bad guys in Russia through the 1990s while she was there reporting for the journal. And she gave a famous testimony, which you can find reprinted at scotthorton.org, by the way, scotthorton.org slash fair use. You can find it there. She gave this great testimony to the U.S. Congress where she explained the shorthand version of it all and promised it. And I have a new book that's coming out this Thanksgiving about it. Well, she all of a sudden lost her publisher who wouldn't return her phone calls anymore. And then no publishing house in all of New York City would talk to her about this book. And she was just clearly had been blacklisted and could not get a publisher, even though it was already basically done. So it never happened. But I got a hold of her by way of our buddy Jeff Deist put me in touch with her and I interviewed her and I said, well, I'll publish your book, <laughs> you know? And so I know she's had a couple of setbacks, but she, last I heard from her, she's hard at work on revising and updating that and getting that ready for publication as well. Good for you, Scott. That is excellent. Yeah. It's called How America Built the New Russian Oligarchy. Yeah. And then I've got this guy, John Weeks, who's a good buddy of mine who I met up at Pork Fest, and he's one of these deep thinking types. So his book, it's all about the ideology of American empire and America's narratives and belief systems and all this, like he's Klaus Rind, you know, something cool like that, really deep stuff like that. 
And he's hard at work on that. I know he's making a lot of great progress on that. And then I got one more really big one, but I'm not sure if it's a secret or not. So I don't think I should say. Ah, okay, fair enough. So the website, libertarianinstitute.org. Where do you send people these days when they want to know more about Scott Horton? You go to the Libertarian Institute or, or where? Yeah, Libertarian Institute. You can find my show there, but my website for my show, for my main feeds and everything, if people want to go there, is scotthorton.org. But the Institute is the Institute. And I don't really do that much for antiwar.com above board. I work behind the scenes a bit here and there, but I play kind of a behind the scenes role there rather than on the front page. But I always recommend people look at antiwar.com because it's really much more important that you pay attention to Dave DeCamp than it is that you pay attention to me because that's the most important news all day, every day and never quit there. So, and not just him, but especially him. And I don't know, what else do I got? I'm on the radio in Los Angeles on Thursday afternoons at 2.30 on KPFK 90.7 FM. And then let's see, I guess we talked about the books. I think that's it. Okay, well, I'll link to all this stuff. And look, you know what? Let me brag about the Institute because first of all, oh, please. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods is on my board of directors, so you know it's cool. That is so, yes, correct. Absolutely. But also, look, we got this great deal set up where we got a bunch of libertarian legends and a bunch of great upstarts, too. So we have Lori Calhoun, of course, and Sheldon Richman, and we've got the great Jim Bovard, all fellows at our institute. I'm happy to say all three have been guests on the Tom Woods show. Absolutely, of course. And good interviews, too. Everybody loves Jim Bovard, man. And Sheldon and Lori. Yeah. And then I'm sure you may have heard the rumors, <laughs> the news that Cato got rid of their very best guy, Ted Galen Carpenter. And now he's our guy. I wrote to my subscribers about that. Yes. Yeah. And so they hired Kathy Young and they got rid of Ted Carpenter. And it was because you remember this happened last year that there was this letter from all of these AstroTurf libertarian organizations in Europe that you've never heard of before, the Ludwig von Mises Institute of Lithuania and the Austrian School of Hungary and the whatever. And there was a hundred of them, all these ridiculous organizations. It was, it was, I think, 50 or something signed on to this letter saying, oh, how dare the Cato Institute in the form of Doug Bondo and Ted Carpenter oppose American support for Ukraine and the war. When Ted Carpenter's been writing against NATO expansion since Bush Sr. was still in power and how this was going to cause a problem, and he warned all along, he's probably the most consistent and best critic of this policy in this country this whole time. And then when everything he said came true, when they refused to listen to him, his own home base throws him overboard. Believe that? in favor of, because Tom Palmer and the Atlas group are all in with the NED and the regime change ops, you know, if they can invoke free markets to help voice a coup on some unsuspecting population, they'll do it. And anyway, so we got them now. I'm proud to say, and I'm glad that happened because frankly, Ted Galen Carpenter was way too good for the Cato Institute. I say, let Tom Palmer have it and him and Kathy Young and see who pays attention to anything that they have to say and what effect they have on the movement at all. But he's just making my masthead look awesome right now. And then of course, as we talked about, the great Keith Knight is our managing editor and hosts a great show. And then we got Kyle Anzalone, who's our news editor and is also opinion editor of antiwar.com. And he hosts his own show. And 
Then we got Patrick McFarlane, who especially has been killing it on China and with his great podcast. And Connor Freeman, who is, I guess, assistant news editor at the Institute, but also writes for antiwar.com. And of course, Tommy Salmons, everybody's favorite trucker and libertarian podcaster from down there on the Texas Gulf Coast. I mean, we're just killing it all the time. I see people on Twitter going, man, I learned so much from the antiwar.com slash Libertarian Institute crew every day. I can't believe it. And it's just true. The combination of, you know, Dave DeCamp doesn't work at the Institute, but we reprint his stuff all the time. But basically, we're sharing this whole staff of these young guys at both organizations here. And they're just killing it day in and day out. So I hope people tune in and don't miss it. All right. Well, I will have everything that you talked about linked at tomwoods.com slash 2333. So books, websites, all that stuff will be on that page. Well, thank you, Scott. Now, don't keep talking to me. Get off the phone here or off the Zoom call and go get to work. We need that book. All right. Back to it. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. All right, everybody. Before we go, I want to add a couple of things that Scott asked me to add to this recording after we finished the conversation, after we hung up and then he wrote to me to say, ah, darn it, I forgot to say X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to say X, Y, and Z for him. Before I say X, Y, and Z, I want to point out the heroism of Chris Williams, my audio guy, because I don't know how this happened, but when I was recording, I know you don't care. I, I don't, nobody cares about the audio struggles of podcasters. I know that, but yet I still feel compelled to tell you. I record myself locally on my computer. I record the guest on Zoom. I wouldn't use my Zoom recording because the audio quality has already been crunched around and wrecked by being processed through Zoom. So I just record myself locally. I have two different programs running, Zoom and my local software. The problem with this software is it is very bad at telling you, are you sure you want to close the software because you haven't saved the file you're working on? Well, I closed it yesterday. Closed it without saving my conversation with Scott, my end of it. Well, thankfully, I have the Zoom version. But as I said, the Zoom version is not as good quality. But it was something, and at least we had that. So today's audio quality from my end was a little bit lower than normal. All right, I got that off my chest. Here are the things Scott wanted to mention. First of all, he's very, very unhappy with himself that he did not mention Will Porter and Hunter Dorensis at the Libertarian Institute, because they're both great, and I can attest to that. And then the other thing he wanted me to tell you about is that on June 3rd of this year, this being 2023, for anybody listening uh, far in the future, Scott is going to be speaking at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity event in Houston. The event is called They Lie, Nihilism and the War on Truth. So you want to go see Scott do that, then I will have the link to that event featuring Scott up on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2333. So that's where you can get the information about that. All right, there we go. Scott Horton is satisfied. I'll see you all later. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.